0: I'm Joseph, and I'm Nick, and this is Fish Jelly, Mm. Mm. good morning, good morning, (laughs) the previous podcasts we recorded Saturday night, Mm -hmm. so this is the first time doing it on Sunday morning. Mm -hmm. Last night was uh, (laughs) rough for me because I drank a little bit too much.
1: You got so excited.
0: We had a Zoom call with friends and yeah. We were only on the call for like an hour. It was longer. Was it longer? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I had too much to drink, so I went to bed very early. Mm-hmm. Well, not early for me, but right earlier mm-hmm. than I would have liked. How are you feeling? <clears throat> uh, good. Hopeful. About what? That
1: uh, L.A. is going to open up soon.
0: Okay. Well. <laughs> Do we want to start with Drag Race Down Under? Sure. <clears throat> Let's start on an a, uh, unenthusiastic note. Yeah, still not impressed. So, this past week, who went home? Um... <laughs> See, I don't even... The only thing remarkable to me uh, about the most recent episode is that the contestant, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, mm-hmm. She went home. Oh wait, who's the one who did blackface? Uh, the one whose name was Scarlet something, Adams? Scarlet Johansson. No, uh, Scarjo. Scarjo. Yeah, it came out. Well, it came out like in the beginning of the episode when you know the overly produced segments where the queens are where, getting ready. Where you have Art Simone go,
1: hmm, has anyone uh, done anything in drag that they're ashamed of?
0: And as soon as ding ding ding. Yeah, as soon as he said it, I was like, someone did blackface.
1: <laughs> But then, as soon as he said that, I remember back when they first announced the cast of this, that was a a, a hot topic. Um, Although, you know, at that time I didn't bother
0: to care to look into it. Um, But yeah, so one of the contestants, uh, Scarlett Adams, I believe, is her name, right? That sounds right. Anyway, yeah, she had done blackface previously. Which sounds like an old Catherine Hepburn character. And (laughs) so when it was announced she was on the show... It popped up on social media, like images and videos of her doing it. So during the episode, she discusses it. And then actually, et cetera, et cetera, is the one who tries to school her on it, Mm -hmm. who happens to be the one to go home. And then during the elimination process, RuPaul brings it up like it's been brought to my attention. You've done this. Would you like to explain yourself? She explains herself. And Ru says, I know people want me to cancel you, but I'm going to use this. As an opportunity to show kindness, and maybe people can learn, and mm-hmm. you can grow from this. So that was that. But yeah, still not, still not in love with the show or any of the contestants.
1: Well, <clears throat> it's funny for somebody that is facing that kind of a dilemma. He doesn't kind of go out of his out of his way to seem like he's done anything different, or his
0: because he still seems unfriendly. And uh. Uh, okay. So, my only thought is when people say, like, you have to atone, I just don't know, like, what he would need to do. Like, this, you know, drag performer, when he was very young, like, I'm, like in his early 20s, did a character in blackface thinking it was funny. I, and then it's like, he realized that it was wrong, probably because of the negative reaction he received. Like, had he not received that reaction, he would probably still be doing it well
1: that's that's the thing I think your your behavior changes and your attitude towards other changes when you learn to feel
0: empathy for them sure but people even etc cetera, etc cetera, was saying like he needs to do something but what does he need to do like give money to the NAACP well, or she, like, she, well I mean, she said he needs to do more than just say he's sorry which I agree with but, but, but what is that? like people always say that but it's like what is he supposed to do because well, it makes I, it sound think, like he needs to do something for black people
1: he, I think it's a personal thing that he needs to figure out for himself that, that is genuine and authentic.
0: And I, I don't think there's a script for it. I agree with you, but I think people act like they want to know. Like, sure. you need to explain to me what you did to atone for this thing you did I don't like. And I just, I don't know. As a black person, I don't feel like I need that. Like, you recognize that what you did was stupid. You're not going to do it again.
1: Well, because the, anything anything innately that comes out of that has to be lip service because you're just
0: answering a question. But I I think it has to be a personal journey. As a gay person, as a black person, I know there are a lot of people out there who may have negative thoughts towards someone like me and maybe they have done and said things that they are now embarrassed for. And all I can ask for is that you stop doing it. But you donating money to, you know, some LGBT, like, non-profit, that doesn't make me feel like you're a different person. Agreed. The only thing that I can, the only thing I would feel good knowing is that you know that you can't say that shit anymore or you're going to get lit up. So stop saying it.
1: It's just, it, I, what I think the point I'm trying to make is if you get clocked and learn, you know, learn your lesson and learn to, uh, thinking about changing your behavior and how you move about in the world. I think that what's supposed to happen is it
0: affects how you deal with everyone else as well. Yes, I agree with what you're saying and I think that that's like real change. Yes. I'm talking about this fake ass like someone in the public eye did something a group of people don't like and they issue an apology and they donate their next paycheck to said group affiliated and and, and then it's supposed to be like well they did what they're supposed to do. And I just don't think to me that just seems fake. Like what, like what you said, sort of personal growth and, and doing the work that makes you feel better and learning from what you've done. But how could we ever quantify that or qualify that? Like we don't know people's true feelings. So uh, well,
1: That's right, you can't.
0: So, so I, I just think it's so strange that people feel so comfortable saying, you need to atone. I don't know what that, that would be, but you need to do it. Well, shit, bitch, I mean, if you don't know what I need to do to make you feel better about what I did, then, like, what am I supposed to do? And do I even care? You know, the other thing, too, is, like, you know, here's this white queen telling another white queen how she's bothered by her doing blackface. And it's, like, I don't know. Y'all didn't have any black people on the show to even talk about. (laughs) And then the one black person on the show, the host, is just kind of, like. Well, they had two. They, they were people of color. Right. Because they were uh, indigenous, mm-hmm. I'm not sure how to... Um, the, the aboriginal. People from New Zealand and Australia. Mm-hmm. But there were no black people, and what Scarlett did was blackface. Yes. So, you know, the one black person on the show, which is RuPaul, didn't really seem to have an opinion of what she did. She just said, it's been brought to my attention. These photos have come up. Mm-hmm. Explain yourself, and I'm not going to kick you off. Which is her choice. It's her show. And I don't know that I wouldn't feel the same. Like, I would be like, well, you know what's wrong. So, you can call me the N-word when you're at home and no one's filming you. But out in public, you can. And, like, I have no control over that. I I just found it funny that, like, you know, this other white queen who seems to also be very... You know, she identifies as trans, right? Et cetera, et cetera. Or non-binary. Yeah. But... You know, she seems to be very, like, easily lit up about people's language and what they do and say. Mm-hmm. It, it just... I don't know. I don't care what this white lady thinks. Like, I don't care what this white lady thinks, about what this white queen said about well, white people. Well, I, I, I think it helps
1: that you didn't really care for etc. cetera's et cetera, personality either. But I think as grating as that is, I think it helps further a conversation.
0: Yes. The net result is positive that this thing was called out and how are we going to handle it. And... I think what was interesting out of
1: that highly produced moment is you have this younger uh, person as representative of, you know, kind of a, a, a new woke generation and then uh, Maxie Shields as the, an older person who's kind of had put into her two cents of what things used to be like
0: and her perspective was that coming from a particular community where certain language and certain uh views were considered normal you know she could appreciate how people could mistake that for for being appropriate Mm -hmm. And, and i agree with that that's why i think it's so important to understand where people come from before you jump down their throats like I haven't seen, I've seen the images of Scarlett doing blackface, but I didn't watch the videos, so I can't say what she was doing. It it looks sus because <laughs> she's painted dark and then she's holding a puppet that's a black puppet with curly hair and she's wearing a curly-haired wig. So I don't know under what circumstances I would think it was appropriate, but I don't know what she did, so I can't say, like, cancel her. Mm-hmm. But anyway, moving on, you watched... um which I don't even know, are you allowed to even talk about Lissy's story? Uh, Lissy. At Lissy,
1: least. sorry. <laughs> I know, it's so... Uh,
0: Lissy's story is a Stephen King
1: adapted... Stephen King, Steph- as Jamie Foxx in SNL says. Uh, yes, well, it's unspooling, I think July 16th or something is the last... It's an eight-episode series based on the Stephen King novel directed by Pablo Lorraine. Uh, reviews have been out because uh, I, I believe press has been able to speak about uh, as of May 25th, the first several episodes at least. You watched all of them. I watched all of them. I watched portions of a few episodes. Yeah. <laughs> um, I have to say, it is beautifully shot, but it is beautifully shot trash. Uh, love the ladies. You know, Pablo Lorraine, of course, is a, a notable director who's I'm always going to be interested in uh, at this point. But... You know Julianne Moore. Come on, uh, but seeing her as a, in a, a trio of sisterhood with Joan Allen and Jennifer Jason Leigh, uh, both of who have also done previous Stephen King adaptations, uh, you know I, I liked a lot of scenes with them. Uh, but it's very uh, all of the uh, elements, all of Stephen King's worst elements, I think, are there. Like disappearing into, she's married to Clive Owen as this author who's shot and killed. And, um, there's, she's learned to disappear into his fantasy land world, basically, where which is what he created after being the child of, uh, extreme trauma. And there's some super, n- n- other supernatural elements there. Uh, and it's called Booyah Moon. And every time they said that, I just, I, I just couldn't, I just couldn't. Um. So, yes, Lisey's story, even the name. And, and, you know, I remember I had that book, uh, and I started it, and then I think I read the first chapter and just never finished it. Uh, for something... And, then, you know, you have to see there's ex- such extreme violence against women in it, like Dane DeHaan, who is... Uh, there's the scene... I think you saw the scene where Julianne Moore just gets beat down. Yeah, And it's hard to watch. And I, I get Stephen King... Often has a lot of uh, novels that are dealing with violence against women in ways that are are rough but also you know, have a point. Like Rose Matter, I think was one of my uh, favorites as a kid. That has never been made into a film, but this just wasn't it. Even even uh, as much as I, I love how it was shot uh, by I think is it Darius Khondji, uh, yeah. I, so if you're a fan of anybody in it, of course watch it. But otherwise. Oh, God, this, it could have been a 90-minute movie to me. A 120-minute movie. An eight-hour series? No.
0: Well, there you have it. Okay, there's a TV show called The Wire that... <laughs> oh, is there? There, there <laughs> is, for those who don't know. But I know about it because so mm-hmm. many people over the years have like raved about this show. Mm-hmm. And you finally decided to put it on. It ran from 2002 to 2008 on HBO. I think 60 episodes? Yes, there mm-hmm. are 60 episodes. Um, and it, it's always been on my radar. Yeah. And it has a predominantly black cast. So that was always, like, that always piqued my interest. But at the time, I didn't have HBO. And I don't know that access to the show up until recently was easily available. Unless you bought the disc set. Right. So, you know, we have access to HBO Max. So mm-hmm. we. Watched the first episode, you watched more than one episode, right? No, I just watched one. Oh, so what did you think?
1: Um, it's interesting, you know, in retrospect, it's I think you come to expect a lot from the first episode of a, a series with uh the reputation this has, and it starts off kind of on a, a slow note. It's you, you kind of slowly sink into it, but by the end of the episode, I liked it. Uh, so I, I'm very much interested in continuing. It
0: didn't grab my attention the way I wanted it to, but I think like you said all of the um I had a lot of expectations like that I'd be blown away and the first episode's pretty sleepy to me, but um I am interested in continuing. You can go on without me and I'll I'll pop in whenever you're mm-hmm. watching it. Um so don't let me stop you. But to talk about a series that did grab my attention mm-hmm. and mine, The Mayor of Easttown, not the the just Mayor of Easttown. <laughs> I heard some people talk about it, and I had no idea what they were talking about, and you had mentioned it once, I think, mm-hmm. prior, and then we had a free, what was it, like a Monday, or? I don't remember. I think we were waiting for access to a screener. Yeah, we were, yes, that, that's right. We were going to watch a screener, that access was getting janky, so we put on Mayor of Easttown. and when I tell you that shit is so good, mm-hmm. and I don't have any thoughts about Kate Winslet, like good or bad. But she is so good. The story is like my kind of story, like full of shit and drama and... <laughs> well, kind of like the for that first season of True Detective. Yes. Yeah. But talk about Mare of Easttown.
1: Uh, well, I, I do like Kate Winslet, uh, who will uh, be starring opposite Sigourney Weaver
0: in Avatar 2. Uh, oh, I didn't well. know that.
1: You, you didn't? I know I've talked about that. No.
0: Well, I i mean, of course I know Sigourney Weaver is in it, but I didn't know Kate Winslet was in yeah, it. Yeah,
1: the reunion of the James Cameron ladies. Uh, so, yes, and I i think that it had been on my radar, reading all these articles about how she tackled this very difficult accent. Uh, but yeah, just a very well done character work. It's directed by Craig Zobel, who has not done anything that I've seen that I didn't like. Uh, I loved Compliance. Uh, That was one of the best films that year. Uh, Z Z for Zachariah. Uh, The Hunt uh, from last year. Oh, that's Craig Zola? That's Craig Zola, Oh, wow. Yeah, so I think he's a very intense, interesting director uh, that has usually a lot of great roles for women. Um, And Kate Winslet, I think it's one of the best things... She's done. It's a very meaty role. I like all the supporting characters like Evan Peters, like Jean Smart.
0: Um, well, um, oh, yes, her accent, very strong. because <clears throat> She has a British accent, naturally, correct. Right. Uh, and then her look, I really <laughs> like that she looks normal. Like She looks like she's probably like a size 12, 14. She looks like she doesn't have a bunch of shit injected into her face. Her hair, I... I'm having a hard time, to- difficult time clocking if it's a wig which is a really good sign but it looks like she has like roots that are grown out for a year which is in line with what her character is going through I won't I think we should wait until we finish the last episode so there are seven episodes yeah which the last one is today I think we watched six episodes like we watched oh. four in one night and yeah. then two the next night and then tonight will be the last final episode <laughs> so I think maybe next week we can do like a recap okay Sure. On the podcast, probably not video, but um, yeah, this shit was riveting, and I cannot wait to find out what we have in store in the last final episode. But moving on, what is Bones and all? Oh, so
1: we're uh, at the section of new projects that are being filmed. That oh I'm yes, interested. the
0: section of new projects. Go the ahead. The section
1: of new projects anointed. Uh, this actually isn't news. Partially, uh, Luca Guadagnino is finally starting his next project, uh, Bones and All, based on a novel by David Kajganich, who wrote uh, the screenplays for A Bigger Splash, which is, of course, a remake of La Piscine, uh, and Suspiria, which is, of course, a remake, both uh, for Guadagnino. Uh, But I think what's interesting is it's just started filming, announced a whole parcel of new um, cast members, because previously I only knew about Timothée Chalamet, uh, who is reuniting, of course, after *Call Me by Your Name* with Luca Guadagnino, and uh, it's about cannibalism, which I think is, you know, oh. interesting and an extension of uh, the Army Hammer uh, ongoing debacle. Uh, but Taylor Russell, I believe, is going to be the lead, who was my favorite in the movie *Waves*, uh, which you saw with Kelvin Harrison. Yes. Yes. Uh, Chloe Sevigny and David Gordon Green, the director, also starring in it. Uh, So, needless to say, I'm very excited for that film. Okay, what is uh, Poor Things? Poor Things is the next project from Yorgos Lanthimos, who directed... I I know I made you watch Dogtooth. Um, I don't know if you've seen The Killing of a Sacred Deer, or The Favourite, or The Lobster... Um, I saw the lobster. Okay, so you know his brand of, came out of the Greek weird wave, uh, as it were. Uh, He is reuniting with Emma Stone, who after Cruella, I'm actually, you know, she's not uh, on my avoid list, I guess. Uh, He's adapting Poor Things, which is kind of a Frankenstein story based on a 1992 Scottish cult classic, uh, also starring Mark Ruffalo and Willem Dafoe. Okay. Is that it? No, didn't you write...
0: It? I gave you a bunch of things for your... No, I mean, agenda. are you done talking about poor things? Yes. Okay, I don't want to cut you off, as I'm apt to do. <clears throat> uh, what is brother and sister?
1: Oh, so, uh, Arnaud de Plachon uh, has been very busy. Uh, uh, obviously notable French director. Uh, Cannes will be announcing their uh, official selection June 3rd, finally. And uh, his... He adapted a Philip Roth novel called Deception, which I actually aim to... I started reading several years back and never finished, so I aim to... hopefully over the next week I'll probably read that. Uh, that is uh, highly tipped to be a potential uh, film program to Cam this year, but he's already announced another project called Brother and Sister, starring Marion Cotillard and Melville, Melville Poupon, uh who I also... Uh, both of those people I quite like, so it's exciting to me. Okay, Le jeune Imam. Le Le Imam. Uh Kim uh, Chaperon's new project. Uh, you know Kim Chaperon, who directed Shaitan, starring Vincent Cassell.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, kind of, kind of this uh, director that came out of that, uh, what did they call all those people then? Uh, the Splat Pack. He's, he's kind of uh, involved in that, but uh, has graduated to other things, and is Related to the, I forget who he's related to, the the Gavris clan. Anyway, uh, that is a project I'm interested in. And lastly, Great Freedom. Great Freedom. It's the sophomore film by an Austrian director named Sebastian Mies. Notably, it stars Franz Rogowski, uh, who... I feel like you've seen him things, uh, but you're going to see him this week in Undina, uh, which I'll be rewatching, but you'll be seeing for the first time, uh, which a uh, Christian Petzold film I really like, uh, and he his this project Great Freedom is about a man that survives the concentration camps only to directly be escorted to prison due to Paragraph 175 because he's a homosexual. Uh, so that uh, the period in the The subject matter, of course, I think should be interesting. Plus, I think Rogowski's a
0: fantastic actor. All right, so moving on to movies we watched this past week that we didn't review on the YouTube channel. Mm -hmm. Waiting for You? I watched... Well, so I watched two Fanny Ardant films I
1: haven't seen before. Okay. And I guess we'll just put a pin in why. But yeah, I watched a film called Waiting for You. She did in 2017. uh, And Sabrina... (laughs) But she has a very small role in that. Um, my mother never liked Julia Ormond. I don't know if it's because she was upset at Legends of the Fall or what. Uh, but <laughs> but uh, for some reason, my mother did not like Julia Ormond. Uh, so the, you know, when her heyday was kind of, you know, in that mid-90s period, uh, and she did a remake of Sabrina, of course, the Audrey Hepburn uh, classic. And I'd never seen it. Sidney Pollack directed it. Um, just uh, it, the sh- the scenes in France, Fanny uh, Fanny's beautiful. Um, I think Valerie Le Mercier has a small part in there as well. But as soon as they get back and we're stuck with Julia Ormond and her makeover and falling in love with Greg Kinnear and then Harrison Ford, ugh, like neither, uh yeah, nope. it 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 was unpleasant and and dull. And I can I, I can see why that film is probably not as obviously beloved as uh, Humphrey Bogart and uh, Audrey. You finally watched Ray. Yeah, there's a reason though. Uh, first we watched Leprechaun 5 in The Hood. And <laughs> and I was looking up, because every time I see Warwick Davis, who plays Leprechaun, and Willow, uh, I'm like, God, what else did he do? He had to do, and I saw Ray in his filmography, and I'm like, well, we need to watch something quality after Leprechaun 5 in the hood, so... You
0: didn't like Leprechaun 5?
1: <laughs> <laughs> it was a chore to get through. Um, I do like iced
0: tea, but that was a chore. It's obviously so stupid, yeah. but it's also, you know, le- I don't think I... I mean, I should know this, but I think I had forgotten that the Leprechaun speaks in rhymes. Mm-hmm. So, hearing the Leprechaun rhyme like inappropriate... <laughs> yeah, because he, he riffs on fucking I Have a Dream. <laughs> yeah, he makes sort of, like, inappropriate, definitely not PC comments, and then he rhymes them. So, yeah, that it was worth watching for that. So stupid. But what did you think of Jamie Foxx and Ray? Oh,
1: excellent. Really good.
0: Um, I mean, I don't know why
1: I never saw... I mean, I was in college when that came out, and I... I think biopics are never my go-to anyway, and of course I wasn't watching films at the level I do now. It's just something, like a lot of films, like, oh, this doesn't sound like
0: fun. <laughs> Ray's an inter- Ray Charles is an interesting figure because oftentimes we'll say, you know, if it's a huge figure like a, you know, like an Elvis or an MLK or a, you know, even when they do Stevie Wonder's biopic or Michael Jackson's, their careers and their lives are so big that you have to just take, like, a moment, yeah. right? And then there are people like a Ray Charles who I think his popularity is not as big. So it's not like taking a moment would have made sense. I I think a two-and-a-half-hour movie makes sense for sure. someone like Ray Charles. So, I, I like, I think that was the best way to do it. It does feel a little tedious at times.
1: Sure, but you know I, I always appreciate a film that doles out a lot of uh, great moments for women because you got Carrie uh, Washington and Anjana Ellis and Regina, Regina King and
0: uh, the woman who plays his mother, who never really did anything else. But uh, Jamie Fox does such a good job as Ray Charles. So yeah. It's yeah. just worth it to see him perform at such a high level.
1: It, you know, and it's directed by Taylor Hackford, and it's interesting to read that Hackford had the rights to Ray Charles' story since 87, and had, you know, nobody wanted to produce this film, which, obvi- in retrospect, is so strange to me. Um, and, you know, that was the year Jamie Foxx was double-nominated for an Oscar, uh, with, between that and Collateral. And it, it is a well-enough-done biopic uh, it, it just gets to the point where he, uh, kicks his heroin addiction, you know, and then, and then you get the montage of luck, and then he did all these other albums and went on to blah, blah, blah. Right. <laughs> you watched something called She? Oh yes. I wanted to read the synopsis to tell you why, uh, this immediately drew me in. Um, do, 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 do. In a dystopian world, male shoes dominate and the females high heels with spindly vines, are kept strictly for breeding purposes. Under disguise, a female breaks loose and attempts to move beyond her confines. Her attempt alters not only her fate, but the very fabric of society. <laughs>
0: mm, sounds like handsom- handma- Handmaid's Tale. <laughs> but this,
1: but told with shoes in its... Um, oh, literally shoes. In a stop-motion animation. Oh! Um, it's directed... First-time director, Zhu Shangwei. Uh... And it's very uh, Jan Sfankmeyer, uh if you are familiar with any of that uh, stop-motion. Like, it, it reminded me in the best ways of something like Little Otik, a.k.a. Greedy Guts, and, uh, uh, and, and very subversive. And the weird traditions that he builds in this world of shoes uh, that's kind of nonsensical. Even early David Lynch, maybe a little bit, who I know had some shorts. That were animation, if not stop motion, um, yeah, fascinating. It, it definitely is kind of the makings of a cult classic, and it it was came out in 2018, uh, and it, it right now is streaming on Mubi, which is why I knew about it. But in and in, you know on Mubi, I think things are only available for 30 days. But yeah, fascinating. We watched something
0: called Grizzly, mm-hmm. which was released by who? Uh, Severin Films. It was interesting. It's like if Jaws were a grizzly
1: bear. Oh, it's very much a Jaws <laughs> ripoff. It's 1976.
0: Um, boy, Christopher George, the lead. Uh, Who was in Playgirl. Yes. So I, if you want to see his dingle dangle, just Google that.
1: Which there, apparently that shoot, he was eating watermelon.
0: Yeah, the photo I saw of him, he's naked and uh, like sort of spread eagle, but on his like side and just eating a watermelon, a, sli- a big slice of watermelon with a spoon.
1: Yeah, it's <laughs> interesting what they thought was sexy uh, back then. But uh, he he kind of has that Lee Marvin, James Coburn kind of grizzled masculinity. Uh, and I just kept laughing because they make it seem like they're at s- somewhere in the city because he... It's the park owner where this grizzly is, this 15 foot grizzly is, you know, slaughtering people. And he keeps saying, cause he's
0: the park supervisor. He's like the park ranger. He's the park
1: ranger. This is my jurisdiction.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's... I was most disappointed in the, you know, the, the practical effects of the grizzly bear attacking, like the actual attacks are comical. Oh yeah. Cause it's all edited. Okay. Because I'll edit it and, and, and we only see like what looks like just a big furry arm with claws attacking things. But then we have like stock footage of a grizzly bear walking around. <laughs> it's uh, It made me want to rewatch Herzog's Grizzly Man uh, as well as Grizzly 2 The Revenge. So I would recommend... I don't recommend watching Grizzly, but I do recommend watching the trailer for Grizzly 2. <laughs> God. Which has George Clooney, Laura Dern, Laura Dern, Louise Fletcher, and Charlie Sheen, mm-hmm. <laughs> which
1: was filmed in the early 80s and came out last year. But the director of this, William Girdler, also directed a direct sequel to Grizzly called Day of the Animals, which Severn Films also put out and we haven't watched yet. Um, William Girdler, I find, to be interesting. Not only did he direct the, the black exploitation remake of The Exorcist, which we've seen, called uh, Abby. Oh yes, now st- I do recall. And starring uh What's Her Name from We rented Mar- that from Cinephile? We rented Black Devil Doll from Hell from Cinephile. Oh I used to own Abby. I think I, I thought it was it needs to be restored because it's just it's it's hard to watch in its current um uh form. But it stars uh What's Her Name from Imitation of Life. Uh Juanita uh what's her name? And the guy from, Bla- William Marshall from Blackula and Juanita Moore. Anyhow, William Girdler also directed a film called The Manitou, which I would not recommend watching unless you have some kind of substance, mind-altering substance. But uh, Susan Strasberg plays a woman afflicted with a demon growing out of her neck like a goiter. Uh, and I, will, I invite you to watch the trailer for it. which For The Clansman. For the, for the Manitou. I thought we were talking about the Klansman. No, I'm still talking about William Girdler. Oh. Okay. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. Uh, the trailer for The Manitou where Tony Curtis is like, has that reaction like, in the neck? It's a demon in the neck? Anyhow. Well, let's move on to The Klansman. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I watched last, which is a film that I've always wanted to see, but again, subject matter, and d- despite the, the horrible reputation that precedes it, uh... <laughs> Just never seemed a prime moment. But I watched it last night. Uh, notably, OJ Simpson and Lola Fulana, uh, in the supporting cast who are fascinating to see. Especially Lola Falana, who is actually giving a performance unlike Lady Coco is, you know, exploitation Gold. But, uh, you know, this is actually playing a sympathetic character. Not unlike she did in Liberation of L.B. Jones as well. Uh, but it's... It's infamous, Samuel Fuller had written the script and was supposed to direct, and the studio got uh, nervous about the subject matter, uh, so they uh, basically had the script rewritten, Sam Fuller, who was an excellent director, left, Terrence Young directed, and it's, it's shocking because Terrence Young directed three... I think three, if not more, James Bond films starring Sean Connery in the 60s. He had a great film called Cold Sweat that I love with Charles Bronson, which maybe is on the B-side, but I still think is an excellent film. And it's shocking the quality of The Klansman, uh, which needs to be restored. But the leads, Lee Marvin and uh, Richard Burton, were just drunk the whole time. And most of Richard Burton's scenes have to be on his back or sitting, and he's Visibly slurring. But the best scene that you have to see is the fisticuffs between Richard Burton and Cameron Mitchell. And Richard Burton is clearly drunk. Like, can almost barely stand. And is throwing punches at Cameron Mitchell, whose body is flying all over the place. And <laughs> this woman kisses him afterwards. And the line, he's, he just just slurring. It is fantastically... Oh. Oh, my God. Um, Definitely worth a
0: watch, though. All right, moving on, you want to run down your top five releases for May, the month of May. Well, we're at the end of the month, and I I think
1: we're trying to make it a tradition that uh, films you might have missed over the past month uh, that are worth watching. All right. Um, in, In no particular order, but what stands out to me, Wrath of Man. Okay, with Jason Statham, the Guy Ritchie film, *Sequin in a Blue Room*, the homosexual film, yeah, uh, *The Perfect Candidate*. Don't know that one. Saudi Arabia. Okay. Uh, Quiet Place Two. Yes. And maybe just because this whole pandemic has made me grow soft, or maybe just because May, you were shit, May.
0: Uh, Cruella. Cruella is worth watching. Yeah, I. I, I it's. A, I mean, it's the probably the biggest release of. Well, I think Quiet Place Two is kicking its ass at the box office. Not that yeah, I, it not, is. Not that I care about that, but uh, but yeah, no, that's a that's a reasonable uh, uh, selection. Uh, today's May thirtieth, mm-hmm. so it is uh, Remy Ma's birthday, the oh, rapper. Yeah, no Remy Ma. Okay, <laughs> it's CeeLo's birthday. Oh poor CeeLo. He's only forty-seven. Well, you know, he's never quite recovered from. The, his sexual abuse allegations. <laughs> and uh, why Nona Judd oh, is Winona. only 57? Well, you know, she's. Anyway. Okay, today's topic is death. <laughs> <laughs> I thought birthdays were an appropriate segue to death. Just a um, very.
1: Yes, which Joseph has chosen. A very ambivalent, um, nebulous uh, conversation on
0: death. Well, what prompted it was a friend relate a story about someone at his job dying and sort of how that affected the day and for some reason that story i would say bothered me well i think and i don't want to give all the details but it was a a a gentleman was struck by a car and killed Mm -hmm. and um and then he had the our friend had the occasion to meet the wife Mm -hmm. who was asking like has anyone seen her husband and then everything that transpired. And the couple was on vacation together. And, and, they were on va- and, and they were on holiday. And the man was returning his car. And I just thought like, I don't know, it just bothered me more than stories like that normally would. I think just the...
1: Well, I think there are several things that, because everybody else around that, life is just going on. And, and for this couple, because yeah. I think it's a situation that's so striking because you can imagine ourselves...
0: I think, yeah, I was, you know, selfishly sort of thinking of myself in that situation. But, um, yeah, so that prompted the topic. And my initial thought was, what are some films that stick out as markers for, like, our impressions of death or things that made an impact on our understanding of death? So just, just to start the conversation, I wanted to go there. So I made a list that include films you also mentioned. So I'll just go through them. Um, Bambi. Oh yeah, Disney. Uh, yeah, I remember my mother refusing to watch Disney films with me. I remember <laughs> watching uh, my parents taking us to a theater and we watched Bambi, and I recall being very upset when the mom was. Yeah, it's it's sad. Yeah. Um, Honey, I Shrunk the
1: Kids. That's me. So my mother brought me to that, and that was '89, I think. I think so. I was five. Uh, and I could not get over that ant dying. Like I was. Upset. It is sad because the ant wanted to help. Oh yeah, this this, yeah. this this creature. You know, I think uh, since you brought up this topic, and I was thinking of that film in particular, and, and probably how that affected and informed, you know, going forward with relationships and <laughs> the ant <laughs> for money. Well, uh, you know, is I, that why I'm in this situation though? No, like there are many things. But I uh, oh. thinking about. I always was drawn to feeling such uh, emotion, I think, for these figures that would sacrifice themselves, you know, and I think that was kind of a first, like, I don't know if that's what moved me as a a five-year-old, but I I didn't have a habit as a kid of waking my mom or parents up in the middle of the night, because, you know... I got the impression that that would be uh, not good. Uh, But I remember that night I felt I needed a lot of succor for... I just could not... I I was sobbing over this ant.
0: I have down beaches. Uh, That film fucked me up. It really did. And my mom would watch it often. And I just... I think it was me understanding that like I had developed a friendship with the Barbara Hershey character like as the audience like Mm -hmm. watching because I feel like we're witnessing the Bette Midler character or Bette Midler's character and her relationship with her friend so as the audience we're also going through this friendship Mm -hmm. and what did I know as a kid about these two adult women and their lifelong friendship. But I feel very connected to the Barbara Hershey character, so... And then, what's funny is her death is um, imminent. Like, she's mm-hmm. sick. So mm-hmm. we know she's going to pass. And every time, mm-hmm. it would just tear me up. What's
1: funny is I didn't watch that film until I started dating you. Uh, really? Yeah, I, we watched it. That was back when you would rent discs from Netflix. Uh, so we probably watched that back in 08. And I, that, the first time I'd seen it. Um, and I don't know why, I because that would have sound. It sounds like something I would have watched with my
0: mother. But, um, next we have I don't know. Come and see. Oh God. Well,
1: Criterion put it out, and I had aimed for us to review it because they restored it and put out a Blu-ray last year, but we just never did. Again, a, a world, a, a war film that's definitely hard to sit through, but one of the best of its kind ever made. Elam Klimov. Uh, but there's a scene where this child, because you're following this child, and through, I I don't remember the time span, but not enough, his, his face suddenly becomes like that of an old man as the film goes along, but everything else stays the same. But there's a scene, I think he's looking for everybody in his village, and he can't find anybody, and he starts running, and he starts like running, I think into this field, and he turns around and looks behind this barn, and all he sees are a sea of bodies stacked up against the barn. And I remember finding that so chilling uh, and kind of unforgettable. just Because you weren't expecting it, for one, and just... You've become invested by that time in the film with this child, and you know that things are happening. Uh, but to see it like that is... I don't know. Like, that's a scene I'll never forget in my mind's eye.
0: I have down Faces of Death... I wrote down Faces
1: of Death 2. I never have seen a Faces of Death film, but when I was in grade school, that was what all the kids were trying to
0: sneak watch. So when I was in uh, 10th grade, um, so there's Faces of Death, Faces of Death 2, and then there's another video similar. And we found, we my friend had a babysitter who was of age to rent it, and we convinced her to rent it them for us. So we spent an evening watching them. And they're just sequences of like, You you see, like, open-heart surgery. You see, like, uh, sex reassignment surgery. You see cannibalism. You see people getting their penises chopped off and um, electrocutions and really bad car accidents. And I recall there being, like, a a boxing match where um, someone gets knocked out and ultimately dies from the injuries. And it was... uh, I think the the fascination with those videos really affected me because there was so much build up like oh one day we're going to watch this video mm-hmm. and it was disturbing i recall like I, I distinctly recall me sitting in a bedroom like watching it just being sort of like st- stuck over what i was seeing but yeah that was a big one uh it's a sin which mm-hmm. is the hbo max series mm mm-hmm. mhm about the uh, the group of young people in the UK in the late 80s, early 90s, affected by AIDS and mm-hmm. HIV, HIV and AIDS. Um, yeah, that was... That hit me harder than I thought it would.
1: More than, like, Angels in America? Well, Angel,
0: Amer- <laughs> Angels in America is my next one. Oh, okay. Um, not harder than that, but I think just because, like, you know... You know, ancient, like, the, the fear of dying from AIDS has all but been eliminated in the yeah. past, like, decade. So, that, like, I don't... In the U.S., at least. In the U.S., yes. But, I think, and, and then we're not seeing that many stories, right? So, a lot of gay films don't necessarily, like, that's not a plot point, generally. Like, they were in the late 90s, early 2000s. Well, it's kind of all there were
1: for a while. Right. Young.
0: So I think it was the first time in a while I watched something. And, you know, it, it's a series. It's either five or six episodes. I can't recall. But, you know, we get to know these characters. And, yeah. I mean, emotional. I wasn't crying. But it definitely... I think I did a couple times during that. But, but you know. it was definitely hard to watch these characters meet their demise. Mm-hmm. But then moving on to Angels in America. Because that was 2003. Yeah, I own it my freshman year, yeah. And I recall renting that, uh, I was still living in Las Vegas, and I rented it and watched it by myself one weekend, and just, you know, like being really struck by these characters.
1: and. I remember the hype about it, um, and obviously it was uh, on Broadway, which I didn't have access to as a young Minnesotan, uh, but I read the play, um, before seeing the HBO special, which I know on Blu-ray, but um, yeah. I've never seen Sophie's Choice. Uh, you need... I mean, it's... For all my ragging on Meryl and how she's overrated, Sophie's Choice is pretty good. Um, but the scene where, you know, she makes her choice is... What is her cho- choice? She, she's uh, allowed to save one of her children uh, by a member of the... Uh, some Nazi... Uh, the the child she chooses she gets to keep the other gets carted off to the gas chamber and which one does she choose uh, the one that's in her arms which I think is her girl so she I think they take the little boy oh god and just just the screams and uh, it's it's very well done um, it's a very well done film and that's uh, Alan J. Kula who uh, you've seen Clute yes um, and uh, a really good film with Liza Minnelli. Oh, the sterile cuckoo. <laughs> uh, but it, he's he's done a lot of films. But Sophie's Choice is definitely one of those. Ah, uh, the, the the even her casting I think is an interesting story because they wanted a Polish woman, but they all the women they had the, the 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 issue they had was getting a woman who could also speak English. And you know, Streep is one of those performers who's known as a uh, for her uh, ability, chameleon. Her, well, her accent work, okay. I think, uh, goes a long way. <laughs> uh, but
0: <laughs> yeah, Sophie's Choice definitely is scarred me uh, as a child. Okay, so then moving on to general topics, I guess. Do you want to talk about just talking about death? Like, do you want to talk about AIDS?
1: Uh, yeah, sure. I'm, well, <laughs> HIV slash AIDS. I I think. Um, well, it's interesting because we're both. Uh, a generation that grew up to be afraid of sex uh, and then the advent of uh, PrEP Truvada etc and also other HIV prophylaxis uh, measures you know it's weird to even think what when, when did we start when did that when did we start taking that even like 2013 2014 and even sharing that information the rollout was kind of stymied because even requesting it through our... Uh...
0: Well, I think you should start by explaining. So, um, PrEP is, uh, is an acronym for pre-exposure prophylaxis, and mm-hmm. the drug that's used is called Truvada. Truvada is an antiretroviral medication that if taken daily can prevent someone who is HIV negative from contracting HIV. Right. So, it's essentially like, I mean, it's kind of like a vaccine against HIV. Right. So, but so just, and I, I don't think a lot of people know, because oftentimes, like, when I'm talking to, like, especially at work, like, I, like I've mentioned to some people and they have no idea what it is. I think so.
1: heterosexuals know. But even in the gay scene, um, when we first started taking it and the reaction to people that, you know, the first wave of people
0: taking it was kind of like, oh, you're sluts. Sure. But what I was trying to explain is there is a medication that can prevent someone from getting HIV. Which is pretty right. major when you th- when well, we're talking about death, when you think that there's an entire pop there is an entire population of gay men who were wiped out from HIV and AIDS, and then there are I would say two generations post who lived in extreme fear of getting HIV, and then you have current generation that has no thought of like no conception of no it. no conception really. of being afraid. Yeah. So it's a very interesting trajectory because it's only been you know. For like thirty-five years, Mm -hmm. that we went from like this, just deathly like, ten-year window, to a plague. Seeing well, yeah, like a very deathly plague. To seeing like, effective treatments. To then seeing it, it's not eradicated, but it's managed very well. And then there is um, a high level of prevention. So there's a lot of trauma associated with that. From all, you know, from the people, like, you know, people who were born maybe, like, 10 years prior to myself who had to live through that, you Mm. know? So, like, if you were in your, you know, late teens, early 20s, in the early 80s, I mean, you were, like, the prime demographic for being hit. And the trauma that the people who lived through that and, and are still alive here with us today, the trauma they experienced versus someone who's my age who just spent all of my teens and 20s just thinking I was going to die from AIDS so I was so afraid of everything um, yeah I I think that that it's such a weird thing to then have that thing like that monkey removed from your back
1: yeah mm-hmm.
0: and then it's like oh okay
1: well <laughs> so I, not unlike kind of right now with this pandemic with, with COVID-19 and the vaccine of just you know the trauma of the past year and being like oh it could just kind of be manageable.
0: <laughs> that's a good point, because the trauma, I mean, you know, trauma, trauma, trauma. But yeah, the, the trauma I feel from the past year and some months is pretty significant. And then when I think the trauma I felt from being afraid of HIV AIDS, I mean, magnify that 10 times. And that's why I was operating in my early 20s. Mm-hmm. Like just, everything I did was like, well, this could be the thing that kills me. And Oh yeah, my freshman year <laughs> in college,
1: I was at Planned Parenthood every other weekend lying through my teeth uh, assuring that I had been exposed to something so I could get medication because in my head I was convinced I had
0: so this is a good segue into desensitization because I think like seeing so much death and being aware of it especially in film like it it's funny how we can watch you know I love horror Mm -hmm. I, I can enjoy a good slasher flick And just being able to witness those acts and not feel anything, it's just like, oh, 10 people were killed in this film, like, whatever. Well, because it's funny, because desensitization is
1: ostensibly, that is a a mechanism that is happening internally, right? Because we can't take on, we can't possibly take on all of the um, actual processing of witnessing all this carnage right, right. That, that like it's it's a mental health thing that we we kind of do for ourselves so when you first brought up this topic i was trying to think of you know desensitization and how to get over it uh really it you know it kind of goes back to moderate everything in moderation cuz you can become desensitized to everything but if you take a step back and aren't overly exposed to it suddenly something that had no cuz i often say this right like i've watched a film at a film festival and then i rewatched it a year later and my reaction to it is different because I'm not kind of desensitized to the visual stimulus of a film festival. Um, and I'm actually, you're actually able to, um, kind of, uh, intimately approach something
0: as it should be in the first place. I think, yeah, for me, it's more about like in film, if characters seem real and if we have a relationship with them, right. Seeing them die or being hurt has more impact than just like, Oh, you know, some zombie slaughter a hundred random people in a scene. It's like, well, these people aren't like real people. Right. So I think that's the difference. I don't, you know, desensitization also implies that, you know, I cannot understand or see the value in life or death. And that's not the case. I just think it's an interesting phenomenon that as the days go by, the things that we're allowed to view on television, and particularly violence and death, is considered more acceptable than sex. In this country, yes. In In, adult themes, in 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 this country. In Europe, no. So it's so funny that like, you know, seeing two women be intimate is considered more vulgar or explicit than watching, you know... 100 people be slaughtered by some villain in a Marvel movie. But if there's no blood, it's PG-13. But then if, they, right. But then if a woman were to talk about her menstrual cycle and you saw like a bloody sanitary napkin, that would definitely get an R rating. Or if you uh, watch her get pleasure from uh, Cunnilingus, it'd be NC-17. Right. So, very curious. Um, we don't have a ton of time left. I was gonna mention, um, I have a tattoo that says do not resuscitate. Mm-hmm. And when people see that, they always ask, like, people want to, like, They want me to explain Mm -hmm. like they have a right to know but um my usual response is that I always say I've lived long enough Mm -hmm. but I think part of my thought is well there are two reasons when I think about this tattoo and I was not close to my grandmother like on my mother's side that grandmother is the only grandmother I really knew and I wasn't close to her Mm -hmm. I did grow up with her but there was somewhat of a language barrier and my mom's relationship with her was not the best, so that influenced my thoughts on her. Regardless, she um, ended up having a stroke and was bedridden for like six years. So I watched this lady lay in a, like a hospital bed in her home for six years, staring at the ceiling. She was conscious. She could, she had an awareness of what was going on. She would react, but she was just stuck in this bed for years, and I, I, I always think about that. Like That would be my nightmare. Mm -hmm. and I know people often react like, well, you know, that means if you were to slip in a pool and need to be mouth-to-mouth that you're saying you don't want that. Yeah, I would rather take that risk. Like, you know, I would rather risk that, you know, sort of like, well, I guess he's going to die with something so minor over, like, I don't want to be stuck in a bed staring at a ceiling for years. So I think that's part of it. And also, my thoughts about death are the same as, like, Like, I think, I don't believe in, like, an afterlife. I think when I die, it's going to be the same as, like, before I was born. Like, nothing. Mm -hmm. So, if it's nothing, then, you know, what does it matter how long I live? And I know I'm known for being very morbid, Mm -hmm. but I don't necessarily, I'm not saying I want to die. I'm just saying that death sounds very peaceful and, like, (laughs) you know, like, do I look forward to being dead? I mean, it. To to me, death is not scary. it just seems very peaceful like mm-hmm. like it's a, just the ultimate peace, so I don't think it's something to be afraid of for me. But then that moves me into the topic of suicide. So what are our thoughts on suicide? <laughs> oh, before I go there, what do you think about my dNR tattoo um
1: it doesn't well, I'm also kind of a morbid person as well, uh, but i th- I always think it's to each his own you should have control of your own body <laughs> as the bible says <laughs> the bible doesn't say that um no i it, it, it's sh- everything regarding your body should be your choice
0: oh but that goes for everybody Funny you say that okay, oh, okay. um uh, but, but anyway well then move on to suicide <laughs> what are
1: our thoughts as in good, bad, well, just, hot I mean, or not. Right? I mean, just
0: when you, th- yeah, hot, toot it or boot it. <laughs> <laughs> Again,
1: I think, you know, everybody always says that suicide is such a selfish act. And sure, but you don't know anybody's particular situation. And even if you do, even if you are the intimate of that person, like, I, yeah, I don't know. Like, it's not something I feel like I can say anything about other than that. It's obviously, that should be a personal decision. I think,
0: you know, I don't know the pain some people go through and what some what someone must have gone through to get to the point where they say, I'm going to end my life. So to then tell someone, like, it's not worth it, it gets better. is like, But you don't know what people have gone through. You know, some people want to kill themselves because their parents found out they charge their credit card $3,000 for some Gucci boots. That's not the same as someone who spent a life being abused and... You know, every... We don't know what people go through. I do think that... You you know, but
1: suicide attempts are usually a cry for help, right? Sure. And, and of course, I think there's a whole protocol that should be followed, you know, especially for teenagers. Because, you know, when I was 13, I tried to kill myself. And thinking back... On that 13-year-old, it's like, well, I'm a completely different person now. Sure. But what did I... You know, Wang, realistically, did I really want to die? Or was I just really feeling like I was in a terrible situation and there was no way out? And it really was that. Um, which is why you know why I didn't have to sit on the psych ward, and <laughs> because I, I think that those who I was in contact with were, were able to deduce that. But um, yeah, I, I, I just think. It, but the resulting ripple effect, even from an, a, a suicide attempt, is you know an outpouring of sympathy, and uh, I, I, which I felt very embarrassed and ashamed at because it's like everybody knows my business. I'm in a small town, um, and I didn't want that, but. I think that having lived through something like that, you're privy to everybody's opinions about it. And all I know is as
0: that 13-year-old, I didn't want to know any of those opinions. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I don't... I've never... I mean, I've had suicidal ideations. I've never had a plan, nor have I attempted. But I, I, I think, you know, for as morbid as I am and as good as death sounds, I don't... I will say the thing that keeps me from killing myself is that I don't want to, I, I think about how hurt some people would be and that, Uh huh. and I know that may not be the best reason. No, not really. But, but, <laughs> but, 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 you know, just being honest, I think like, well, I, I've never seriously like been close to doing it because I thought, well, certain people in my life would be hurt and, you know. Uh, you know, I think people listening to this will think that, <laughs> uh,
1: you know, that is, sure, that is, uh, I'm glad that you have that, but I, uh, there should probably be some padding in there, some other reasons <laughs> for wanting to do it.
0: Well, but if I'm being authentic about how I feel about death, to me, it's like if I die today, 20 years from now, 40 years from now, it makes no difference. I won't know the difference my life won't have any more impact than it did. You know, like, I don't... I think that I should live my life and try to do the best I can to be happy and do the best to be a productive member of our society. But I don't think it matters Okay, that ended abruptly. We ran over on time. But you wanted to finish your thought.
1: Oh, I, I... What I was saying was, um, I think that, uh, you know, this isn't just something, it sounds like lip service, but, you know, practicing positivity is really uh, something you have to train yourself to do. Because I I think prior to us being together, I I had a reputation for sounding a lot more like you do, Uh, but I, I think I quickly realized that if both of us constantly had that attitude would be on a sinking ship. So I I equated that to, since I'll never be a parent, um, the only way I will have to experience that selfless kind of love where you you really are putting someone else first. And it really started me on a path of not self-enlightenment per se, but, but having to realize that you have to look at the positive. You, you can steer your boat <laughs> to, to the positive, um, and sometimes you kind of meet up, meet yourself in the middle, like, and that's okay, but uh, it, it really is just putting in the work of, you know, what you put out in the universe comes back to you, I think. Like, I'm not innately a spiritual person, but it, I think the the energy, the the vibe you put out there, I, I think is important because if you if you're a sour ass person and that's what you're putting out there, that's the energy you're gonna receive in response. Uh, it, but if you know when people talk about having the glow and the glow inside you, I really think it's just being
0: comfortable in your space, wherever you are moving about in the world. Okay. Well, that's a good note to end on. However, you do have an interesting list of films to share. Uh, Yes, which probably should have been injected somewhere else
1: earlier. But uh, films that will help you on your own path towards uh, desensitization.
0: (laughs) Okay, here we go.
1: Um, Necromantic.
0: A little necrophilia, yes.
1: These are films that you, I I think at a certain age, uh, you seek out wanting to shock yourself and then end up kind of being like, oh, they're just... Disgusting. Uh, Henry, Portrait of a Serial Killer. Okay. Uh, Angst, another, uh, I think, is it Aust- Cargill? Is that guy's last name? I think it's Austrian. Uh, Gaspar Noe is a big fan of this film, but also disturbing. Uh, and Man Bites Dog, another uh, very realistic, uh, uncomfortable serial killer film. All right. Well, how would you like to end? Um, in the words of uh, Leonard Cohen, as sung by Roberta Flack hey, that's no way to say goodbye.
0: Toodaloo. <laughs>